Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'm probably supposed to be methodical and structured when deciding which guests to feature on Spirit in Action, but sometimes you just have to go with your gut, or better said, perhaps your inspiration. And we have a true inspiration here with us today. His name is Carl Magruder, and although I had seen his articles in Western Friend, it was his FGC Bible Half Hours in July, drawing on echoes of the trickster, also known as Coyote, in diverse religions and spirituality that really grabbed me and made me want to reach out to him. Carl, born in 1969, multiracial, growing up in Berkeley, is a real child of the 60s, complete with an earthquaker email identity, and who got schooled by spirit, led to seminary and into his current work as a palliative care chaplain. Carl Magruder sees wide and deep and brings forth the words to excite healing energy for the earth, humans, around race, and between peoples as he joins us via Zoom from somewhere over in California. Carl, it's a complete delight to have you here today for Spirit in Action. It's great to be here. So a couple weeks ago, you were broadcasting as part of this national thing called the Friends General Conference. You were doing the Bible half hour. Was this excitement that you approached that job with, or was it dread, or was it something in between? You know, we have a wonderful Quaker tradition of ministry as a burden. That's really, that's really much of how it's held. And part of that is sort of the seriousness of trying to undertake the spiritual nurture of other people. And part of it, I think, is just related to sort of normal sorts of nerves that have to do with public speaking. You know, but for me, the ministry piece is always that I, I don't just want to tell people about something, but I, hopefully I want to engage them in an experience that helps them to move some of their spiritual furniture around and actually have some sort of an insight or maybe be able to change something. And that's a high bar. If it was just to sort of give an informational talk, it wouldn't be the same. So I experience it as a burden. I do. And in fact, my partner said, you know, you don't have to feel like this is uh, some sort of hair shirt. And I said, well, you know, it feels that way at times. But I also remember Lloyd Lee Wilson telling me uh, when I was really developing as a minister, you know, do not muzzle the ox that is treading out the grain. There is an incredible richness for the minister when you're asked to bring a message to a body of developing that and letting it work in you. You know, in Quakerism, we don't say the minister prepares. We say the minister is prepared. And historically, we've spoken extemporaneously. And I have always spoken extemporaneously. Maybe would write some notes and then never look at them, you know, and notes that would fit on a three by five card. And this was really different because I actually needed to read it. It was on Zoom. That was different. I'd never done anything that I would call ministry really on Zoom, although I do pastoral care on Zoom all the time. So that was different. I couldn't actually see anyone. I was looking at a Word document and occasionally, like you would if you were giving a talk, look up from the podium at the audience, I would look up at the little green light next to my camera so that, <laughs> you know, it seemed like we were in the same space. Spiritually, I felt like I could feel people. 
So it was, it was a burden and it was just a joy. And there was this incredible sweetness. And then there's been a lot of positive response. And that's not something that we want to allow the ego to crave. But it feels like a validation that my effort to move people was successful for some people that they were able to move maybe some of their feelings or attitudes about the Bible or feelings or attitudes about Jesus and to find some richness there, maybe even some healing. So this was for the Friends General Conference Bible Half Hour. I'll have a link, folks, on northernspiritradio.org with the rest of my links with respect to Carl McGruder. The thing is, you're a left coast liberal loony, So how can you be into Jesus, the Bible? I mean, you grew up as part of a Quaker meeting. I mean, for God's sake, how can you possibly say hallelujah and praise Jesus? (laughs) Well, (laughs) for one thing is I have spent some time in the black church, and that's been good for my soul. You know, the African-American side of my family is ministers and deacons going back and back and back. So I think there's a certain amount of that that's just uh, built in. But, you know, the story I tell and it hit the cutting room floor for the Bible half hour. Half hour is not a long time, but I did actually write it out thinking I would use it, is that I come from a tradition of, as you say, liberal waiting worship, Northern California, Quakers. I was born in 69, so we're going through the, you know, laissez-faire parenting years of the 70s and 80s and, and all of that. And when I went to seminary in 2009, after running from it for 10 years, I had a good run, but I finally ended up in the belly of the whale because I wouldn't go where God told me, and I decided I better go to Nineveh. So I went to seminary, and the way I characterize it is that I went out behind the meeting house where the Bible had been thrown out the back window sometime not long after the Second World War, and I found it in the tall grass with the leather binding rotting and pages missing that had been used by squirrels to line their nests and mold growing on it. And I picked it up carefully and I took it to my Bible class at seminary and they took it from my trembling fingers and they threw it in a chipper shredder and it came out as confetti and little bits of leather. That was my experience that I came in saying, this book has been precious to the Jewish people for thousands and thousands of years to Christians for two millennia. It has inspired incredible acts of courage and creativity and justice. And I want to understand this magic because I come from a people who are suspicious of scripture. (laughs) And uh, Understatement there. (laughs) (laughs) And so so I brought it in with that sort of, show me what's precious here. And their Bible, this is a progressive seminary, but their approach to the Bible was still this deconstructionist approach based on the idea that you were going to come in with a literalistic sense of the Bible, that it was written by one or two people or whatever, and that you really needed to get, you know, woke as far as understanding is written by a whole lot of people over a whole lot of time with a whole lot of agendas and various languages and, you know, but I didn't need that. I was raised to think, you know, this is sort of a, a silly make-believe book that we've outgrown. So I, I didn't get any, I didn't get any sense of its sacredness from that. But I found it in other places. I mean, I remember uh, Bishop Flunder had started a church in the Tenderloin in San Francisco that was open and welcoming to all and had a huge part of its congregation that was made up of transgender sex workers, you know and this radical witness that was going on. And that church ran a food pantry 
where these mostly African-American folks and Latinx folks were, you know, handing out foodstuffs to mostly Asian folks in that part of San Francisco. You know, there's this whole thing happening out of the gospel. I mean, what's more, <laughs> what's more a tribute to Jesus Christ than feeding the thousands, right? And so I, I had to find my own value, and it brought me to hermeneutics, which is the very scholarly way of saying this is the lens we're using to look at the text. And so it sounds very erudite and objective, but really it's a way of saying this is my bias, this is my blindness, this is the Kool-Aid that I have been imbibing. I decided if I was going to study this, then I was going to use a hermeneutic, which is very related to the Quaker hermeneutic, the way the Quakers have always read the text, which was that Jesus was an enlightened one. I'm not going to waste time with did he exist, didn't he exist, was he really, no, Jesus was an enlightened one and had a mystical knowing of God mind. I'm just going to, because if that's not true, why am I reading it? You know? So that was one premise. And as George Fox said, that you can only understand the scriptures are right if you are in the life and power that gave them forth, so that I needed to read it with a spiritual eye, that all this studying and parsing the Greek or whatever needed to be in service to a deeper spiritual understanding of the text. And that made me really long for the days when I was an artist, when I was an actor and a musician, because you're not trying to find little t truth. You're trying to reveal big t truth and engage people in it, right? When Lear comes onto the stage carrying the dead body of his daughter Cordelia and the line in Shakespeare, you know, it's always iambic pentameter. It's five beats, da-dun, 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 right? And his line is, oh, 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 oh. Five O's in iambic pentameter. And he's carrying his dead daughter. And everyone in the theater is right in that loss, right in that grief, feeling it, knowing what it means. You're not out here going, oh, wow, Lear, he really, his hubris really screwed him up. And now his daughter's died. You're not having that. You're having a feeling inside of it. And the seminary just didn't have that dimension. And I was always frustrated. We did a chapel and we were encouraged to do services and learn to preach. And somebody, you know, I said something about, okay, we need the props. And someone said, it's not theater. And I said, no, we would never do anything. This slipshod and this repetitive and tedious in the theater ever. You would never get 250 people in here to see a play and do what you did last week with slight variation. You know, I mean, you would, <laughs> you're going to bring something. You're going to bring it alive. So, so that was my approach. And I found there that I really could understand some of why we still talk about Jesus Christ and what the power of that is. And what do you do with the dark side of the Bible? And particularly, and I think in this day and age, it seems more relevant than ever, with the dark side of the people who embrace the Bible. I mean, I think there's, there's angels walking on this earth carrying Bibles, and I think that there's their counterparts, their countervailing forces doing the same thing. We know that the devil quotes scripture. And when Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights after his baptism, those temptations, the, the devil is quoting the Hebrew Bible. He's quoting scripture. And so you're absolutely right. And I think it's compelling to think about the well, an old Quaker fight, abolition against slavery. I shouldn't say an old Quaker fight. Unfortunately, that fight isn't nearly as old as it should be. But the Bible was brought down on both sides of that argument repeatedly. And I would say in the realm of proof texting that 
the pro-slavers had an advantage. You know, the word servant in the Bible, in most places where it's translated servant, we're just being nice, you know? Slave would be a more accurate description. And those people who are called servants, they're not paid people. You know, they're indentured or they're working for wages and a place to lay their head or they're basically slaves. In America, we have the chattel slavery racially linked. That's just a particularly really pernicious form of slavery, but they're effectively slaves. So, you know, making a case for slavery out of the book. Yeah, I think it is something that we have to do some of that deconstructionist study on, I suppose, you know, that they were that they were leading with when I went to do Bible study. Bishop Spong, I don't know if you've read John Shelby Spong. He's one of the early people I interviewed for Spirit in Action. Yeah. No kidding. If you come out to NorthernSpiritRadio.org, search for Spong, you'll find 75 minutes that I spent talking to him. So he really has dug into the Bible and into the what he calls the terrible texts, the texts that are used to justify homophobia, child abuse, spare the rod, you know, the subjugation of women the tribes of ham argument for black people are inferior and are meant to be in the subservient roles. I mean, he dismantles all of that stuff. And that was a place where I think my Quaker upbringing of a little bit of a tenuous relationship to the Bible served me well, because what I realized at seminary, and I was at Pacific School of Religion, I'm not trying to keep it a secret, and part of what was really progressive about that place was it was very ahead of most seminaries around lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer issues, concerns, identity. And there was a lot of folks with those identities who were at school there. In many cases, they had been raised maybe in an evangelical Christian household or maybe something more mainstream, Episcopal or Presbyterian or something. But they were raised to believe that it was essential to be a Christian in order to be a good person. And that this was kind of the point of life, right? And so this is this essential part of your identity. And then sometime between the age of three and 40, you know, folks realize they're gay. And now suddenly they can't be a Christian and they can't be a good person. Their very existence is making Jesus cry, right? So for these folks, it wasn't easy to just say, okay, well, that book was written a long time ago by people who thought the earth was flat and that epilepsy was caused by demons. They needed to bring it with them. So they're sort of trying to redeem the text. We would call it queering the Bible. That exercise involves a certain amount of postmodern loosening up and moving in there. I didn't need to do that. I didn't feel like the Bible needs to come on my side of saying lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender are okay ways to be. I was already there. And there's all kinds of things in the Bible we don't hold with that we don't worry about, you know, blended fibers or not rounding the corners of your beard or stoning adulteresses. You know, we we don't hold with that. And I don't think we need to feel really bad about going, well, you know, maybe the Bible's kind of homophobic in places, but that doesn't mean we have to be. You know, I think we need to have the courage to be able to do that and still say that it's holy writ and that we value it. But the lesson that I learned from that queering the Bible exercise was what Jewish folks have done for a long, long time, which is midrash and interpretation. You know, that great old story about Rabbi Hillel I forget the other rabbi he's with, actually. You know, we leave out the other rabbi, but it's Hillel is the liberal, and the other rabbi is the conservative, and the Gentile comes up to mess with them and says, rabbis, you know, pretending to be all respectful, can you recite the whole of the law of Torah while standing on one leg? And the conservative rabbi, this is always lost, but it's such a great part of the story. The conservative rabbi beats him with the measuring rod. <laughs> <He does. laughs> 
<laughs> he just gets up and whack, 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 you know, you smart ass. Maybe like a Zen master would do when a student <laughs> asks a really dumb question or something. You know, they whack you with that stick that makes a loud sound. But Rabbi Hillel stands on one leg and says, do not do unto others that which is abhorrent to you. And then he says, the rest is commentary. Go and study. And what Christians don't understand is in a Jewish context to say the rest is commentary is a big deal. And go and study is the heart of your spiritual life. So it's not like, you know, the golden rule is all you need to know. That's not what he's saying, really. The phrase we have, I think we're on the same page. We use that phrase to mean we're in complete agreement. And actually, in the books of commentary, there's the Torah verse in the middle of the page. And then there's different ways that people have thought about it all around it. That's what it means to be on the same page. It doesn't mean we agree. It means from my perspective down here in the left corner, I can understand your perspective up here in the left corner. I can see where you are from here. Maybe I can see where you went wrong. (laughs) And so on the same page doesn't mean lockstep agreement. It means I can understand your point and we're going to tussle, right? Israel, we're going to wrestle. That's the point. So I learned that sort of midrashic fan fiction, let's get our hands into it and move it around so that it will get on us and maybe get in us and change us. And so that was sort of my approach to Jesus the Tricksters. Let's, let's get in there and get our hands in it and get into it and let it get on us and get in us with respect and not taking liberties, not abusing the integrity and so I was, I was getting into the Greek and really trying to understand it with that mystical hermeneutic. There's so much of the life, the spiritual life of Carl Magruder I want to get into. This is spirit in action. People can go out and follow the links to the Friends General Conference Bible half hour, the videos. I'll have them linked on the nordenspiritradio.org site. I also have links to Carl McGruder's current site. He's building it up still. If you search for Carl McGruder Quaker, you'll find links to a lot of interesting articles and such he's written, folks. But you can go to civiclight.org slash soulways. Again, that links on nordenspiritradio.org. And you can follow more of his writings, his ideas, his generation. Some of what I want to get into with you, Carl, is your environmental outlook. I mean, at one point, your email was the earthquaker, right? And so there's this earth concern you have. There's this work that you do as a midwife of people dying, which is essential. You've written about lifting the veil. I mean, again, you were born in 69. Your official moniker, I believe, is Child of the Summer of Love, right? That's your official designation. And because you are also African-American, there's outlook on racism that I want to get from you. You know, you said you spent some time in the African-American church, the black church. I want to start out by asking you, what time did you spend in the black church? I thought, you know, you're raised Quaker. Did you take a vacation or was this part of your study or were you doing two services a day? I mean, the black church goes all day long, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, here's the thing. There was a a couple of ways that I moved into it. One was the Reverend Dorsey Blake, who took over Howard Thurman's church in the Bay Area, was one of my instructors at seminary. He taught and I believe still teaches at Star King, the Unitarian Universalist school there. 
And so we went into that, and that's traditional. That's traditional black church, you know. And then there was other places that we went to church um, that was related to our study. But then there was a certain allure. I don't want to fall into a trap that some friends feel that Quakers would be more diverse if we had more music and uh, a little more fiery preaching or something like that. But, I mean, there's a juiciness in that that is it's nourishment to my soul. And I think it's nourishment to a lot of people. The Quaker way of worship in silence with nothing to see and nothing to smell and no music. I mean, we threw out music. I mean, that's, uh, if you want to connect with other people and with God, throwing out music does seem like a bad way to start. And the social activism that I found in the black church, that was very familiar to me that your faith is not there to justify you in being complacent about your worldview and the state of the world because you're going somewhere else. And that's the point. It inspires us to to action. And so the church that I went to most often in Oakland was doing sort of street patrols and was doing a food pantry and was also helping out with tutoring kids like that Black Panthers had done in Oakland. You know, they were involved and engaged in the community because in the Black community, the functional institution that belongs to black folks is the church. You know, you might have a good health clinic or something like that, but it doesn't belong to the black folks in the neighborhood. So that was inspiring. And then I started to do my clinical pastoral education training in Oakland, which is boot camp for chaplains. They throw you into the hospital and on your fourth day after they've (laughs) shown you where the bathroom is and how to swipe your name badge to get a little discount in the cafeteria, they throw you into patient rooms, you know, on day five. It's a sink or swim sort of a immersion experience. And there the black church was present in the hospital. And I felt that I needed to go out to it, just like any good interfaith chaplain wants to understand what is going on with the people that they take care of in the hospital. What is their pastoral care experience and what is their theology when they're not in the hospital? And I secretly wanted to be able to partner with some of the black church pastors around doing advanced healthcare directives because African-Americans are actually very willing to do an advanced directive on their own terms in an environment where they feel safe when they're not staring down a really dire prognosis. But once we're in the hospital and things have gone badly, in many cases, a very well-justified reticence and mistrust of the healthcare system really impedes the ability to make healthcare decisions that are not being unduly influenced by that mistrust. So I thought if we could talk to people while they're relatively healthy in an environment where they feel at home in a theological context, then folks would be able to put on paper, you know, this is what matters to me. And so we wouldn't find ourselves so often in a situation where everyone's at loggerheads and the ICU staff at that hospital were beside themselves with these situations where, you know, there was what we call medical futility, a horrible term. But the family is insisting that you do everything because the family knows that the hospital, the healthcare system, the history is that, you know, black people are throwaway in the hospital and that they're not going to do everything. If you're dealing with a person the age of my mother in a hospital in Oakland who, you know, maybe her family was part of the great migration to the north and to California, maybe to build ships in Oakland in the Kaiser shipyards during the Second World War. Well, she grew up in segregation in Alabama. You know, you brought a little bleeding black kid who had had some kind of an accident to the white hospital, and they'd take you down the road to the black hospital, which, by the way, was not separate and equal. 
so there was there was that aspect. But the truth of it is, I just um, <laughs> I find black church is it's nourishing to my soul. It's in some ways the quintessential opposite of waiting worship, Quakerism. And yet the idea that God is present, Emmanuel, that God will come in here and be with us right now, today, in this place, that's what's the same. It's not the clockmaker God that made the world and left that you get in a lot of traditional Protestantism. It's lively. It's here. That is the essential thing to me as a mystic is that I want to have an immediate encounter with spirit. I don't want to have ideas about spirit or a list of things I need to do to appease God. I want to encounter God in this place. And to do that communally has a particular sweet energy to it. And that's available in the black church. We're going to talk a lot more with Carl Magruder, but I first want to remind folks you are listening to Spirit in Action. Spirit in Action is a northernspiritradio.org production. For the last 15 years, we've been talking to people who are doing healing work for the world, just as Carl is. We're going to get into some more details of that soon. But on our site, you'll find links to them. So you'll find links to Carl McGruder's five sessions of Bible half hour that he did at the Friends General Conference gathering this past summer. You'll find his website. It's a growing website, shall we say. It's still nascent. It's at civiclight.org slash soulways. He studied theology. We got his degree, became a chaplain by a Pacific school of religion. We'll learn more about that. He could act and sing if you want. And as a matter of fact, one of the delightful things about his Bible half hours were the times when you, Carl, broke into song. Uh, that's, I think, part of the richness of it. But all of these things are linked on northernspiritradio.org, so you don't really have to take notes on everything that I say to you right now. You'll find links to all kinds of people that we've interviewed, both for Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul. You'll find place to put your comments. Please do rate and comment and give us your feedback. Quakerism is best, by the way, when it's communication. We're not only sending prayers up to God, we're listening for God, and we're listening to one another, and we're knowing that everyone has a piece of the truth that we want to hear. And so, please, your comments are part of that dialogue. There's also a donate button, which is how this full-time work is supported. Even more so than supporting Northern Spirit Radio, I urge you to support your local media, your local community radio stations. There's some 40 of them who carry Northern Spirit Radio programming across the United States. Please support them. Help provide an alternative voice. Please support with your hands and wallet your local media, in particular your community radio station. And let's dive back in here with Carl Magruder. Our listeners for Spirit in Action will probably go away at least slightly frustrated if we don't address some specifics about the healing of the world, not just the overview theory, which I find absolutely essential. And part of my basis for doing Spirit in Action is that it really matters what we do internally that prepares us for our work in the world, that motivates us and sustain us in this work. And I think Carl Magruder is all about that. But for some people, they say, well, yeah, but what have you done about the environment? So again, I mentioned uh, one of your identities is as the Earth Quaker. And on the, I think it was the QuakerQuaker.org website, you've got some of your writings, some of your ideas related to that. Tell me 
what Care for the Earth has to do with Carl McGruder, who is, after all, a midwife of people who are dying. I mean, is that the same person? Is that still the same concern? Is it alive in you? Well, yeah. So the earthquaker, Carl, is a good example of how our action needs to be driven by love or motivated by love. Driven already sounds too strident. John Woolman said, love is the first motion. And from thence arose a desire to, you know, go and visit the Indians. But his social action was first driven by love. And that was very concrete for me in terms of my being an earthquaker, that my love of earth, which was nurtured by having a somewhat outdoorsy family, and then this really eccentric old lady who just felt like an old Quaker lady to me. Her name was Mrs. Terwilliger in Marin County when I was a kid, and she had a beat-to-heck Volkswagen van, and she wore a big floppy sun hat, and she was incredibly old. Like, she must have been, I don't know, 60 (laughs) (laughs) but when I was six you know she seemed very old and she wore red Keds sneakers canvas sneakers like me so you know I really liked her and she took us on nature walks in Marin County which is a wonderful place you're counting banana slugs I remember one day she had us press a fern to the back of our hand you put your hand under the fern leaf and press the fern gently on your hand. And it with the spores of the fern are in the shape of the fern leaf. And then she showed us a fossil fern leaf that was millions mm-hmm. of years old, billions, I don't know, very old. And, you know, this thing just happens like there's the imprint in the stone from long, long ago. And it's the same that's on my hand today. And just that sense of wonder was born in me at that time. And they think actually like a lot of child development phases where there's this time for you to learn this thing or, or develop this connection, that that is the age around five, six, seven for people to really have this deep bond with nature. Now, I don't hold with that because I've known people had no connection with nature. And then suddenly at the age of 40, you know, somebody talked them into going backpacking in Yosemite or something and their mind was blown. So I don't think it's like, if you missed it, you missed it. But so there's this deep love for earth and for the natural world. And my mystical experiences as a child were lying on my back in a field and feeling myself just dissolving into everything, you know, with this great sense of peace, all of the things that the classic mystics talk about. I experienced those things as a child, just by lying down in a meadow, I would inevitably sort of dissolve into everything. I remember when I was older, someone saying in a matter of fact way that they felt small when they stood beside the ocean, or under the night sky. And I thought, that's interesting, because I feel vast, like not me, Carl, my little ego, but you know, I feel not separate from that. So I feel this vastness in time and space. So that love of earth is what really connected me to the plight of earth. And I vowed long ago as someone who came and spoke to people about the plight of earth, the state of the earth, that I was never going to do the litany of despair. Totally unmotivating at this point. Everyone knows it for the people who are actively denying it. And I don't think I would reach them by telling it to them again. So I'm not going to go into those things about, you know, I'm not going to go into it. I'm not going to say them. (laughs) But we feel them acutely. And Joanna Macy is one of my great teachers who developed the work that reconnects and has done a lot of really beautiful work with helping people to feel their grief for the world and sort of move through a spiral that, that leads to action last. 
but starts with grief. That was revelatory thing that right now is time in earth where we have a great opportunity to shift the direction we're going. I don't know if you know, in systems theory, there's a concept of a trim tab. A trim tab is a little tiny rudder on the big rudder of a ship. And it doesn't take very much energy with the hydraulics or whatever to move the little trim tab. And so you move it over and it creates a Coriolis behind it. And then it's very easy to move the big rudder. And then you turn the ship. And so there are these little things that we can do that are trim tabs that change the game that enable us to move the big rudder that could enable us to move the ship. And when you were talking about communication and radio and alternative voices, to me, that's a trim tab. That's a sort of small thing, but it allows us to get access to information and viewpoints we can't otherwise get. And then that can create a movement or an awareness that allows us to move the bigger rudder. And we need to be looking for those trim tabs. One of them right now, it feels like a rudder, but it shouldn't be such a big rudder, is voting rights and voting access. That's a thing that will change everything, right? I mean, that's very well understood on the right, that if we increase voter participation, I mean, Donald Trump, bless his soul, he's very honest when he's not being very dishonest. And he said, you know, the Democrats want to increase voter participation to the point that no Republican can ever be reelected. So, you know, that's a, that's a trim tab. I think there's a fight for the soul of the Republican Party. I think there's a virtuous soul that's in there that's gotten occluded by these times. I'm not saying that it has to go, but it may need to be redeemed. So the way that the love of earth relates to my bedside care of folks who are at some point in the ending of life's journey, I have some folks who are we're palliative care and hospice, and some of the palliative care folks are going to get better and maybe live for quite a while and die of something else. But a lot of folks are completing their life journey. And it's part of the challenge of my life at this time that I don't feel a profound connection between my earthquakerness and my pastoral care work. I know that the Chaplaincy Institute in Berkeley has an eco-chaplaincy program. I need to investigate what that's about. But what I find is that In far Northern California, a lot of people's spirituality, whether it's coupled with any other religious viewpoint or not, a lot of them where they feel connected to something larger than themselves is in nature. And we talk about that. And sometimes we'll take a person who's in pretty rough shape and and get them out onto a beach or get them out into the woods. But there's not a strong connection. And there's also not a strong systems critique in the pastoral care. It is sitting at bedside and tending to the souls of people who are one way or another go through what they're going to go through, regardless of whether I'm there. And my theory about it is that I too was a New York Times headline friend, very heady, very rhetorically argumentative, very us and them dualistically judgmental. And that part of the reason for me to become a chaplain is that that mentality and that way of being is totally useless at the bedside. Going into the hospital rooms and houses where people are suffering with serious illness, there's no place for judgment. There's really not much point in any analysis. There's no point in convincing anyone of anything. It's a very receptive, presence-based open-hearted, vulnerable way of being that I was seriously deficient in. And so 
I sometimes wonder if by doing that work now for a decade, I have balanced myself enough to be fit for God's greater plan (laughs) for me, but that I wasn't capable of doing before because I was like a a one-legged robot that just kept walking in a circle. I feel like I now have developed a much more balanced way of being with regard to other people and regard to death and in regard to intractable problems and moralizing judgments and, and all those sorts of things. I really needed help. I just recently interviewed someone who's an activist, a, a mobilizer is what they call them with Extinction Rebellion. I think there's something there which is is maybe Carl Magruder material. But one of the things that he mentioned when he was speaking to the group of us was that they're not into the doom and gloom approach. They have a phrase they use instead, doom and bloom. <laughs> And I have a feeling yeah. that's Carl McRuder in yeah. action. Yeah. Well, and that was my, my early earthquaker ministry was I, I'm going to come and talk to you about the state of the world as an incredible opportunity for us individually and collectively to take the next evolutionary step in consciousness and realize shalom, you know, in the sense of the Hebrew Bible, where shalom is this peace that pervades the human society, but it includes the domestic animals, right? The cows are fat, and it includes the natural environment. The rivers are flowing, and, you know, shalom, God's peace, that we can move ourselves into this place. But we're not going to evolve biologically. Our brains are not going to evolve fast enough. We're not going to be saved by technology, you know, we have to have an evolution of consciousness. And that is a really hopeful and exciting possibility. And one of the things that Joanna Macy has been saying for years is, you know, you have this great turning from the industrial growth society to this life-sustaining society, right, which is where we want to go, where the planet is thriving and each human person has what they need to realize their full potential. But that the beginning of the great turning is the great unraveling. And it's a necessary part of the process. Part of the nice thing about that necessary part is uh, she has said for years, and uh, Sherry Mitchell, who wrote a great book called Sacred Instructions, she's an indigenous, a Native American elder. They both say, you know, we don't need to spend all of our energy beating on these archaic systems to bring them down. They are dinosaurs. They are dying under their own weight. We need to spend our energy doing a little bit of that Sherry Mitchell has the 10-10-80 rule. You spend 10% of your energy paying attention. You spend 10% of your energy maybe trying to stop mountaintop removal mining or something. But you spend 80% of your energy building shalom, building the world you want to live in. So I totally agree that that doom and gloom thing is... There was a point where people didn't know, right? When Marshall Massey came and spoke to Pacific Yearly Meeting, I have his pamphlet, in 1985, people didn't know. People didn't know climate change. They didn't know we were in the sixth grade extinction. They didn't know about these things. It's been a long time since people didn't know. You don't need to tell people the state of things. People know, or they're absolutely not going to know. They're refusing to know, which is a really legitimate response. And, And that's one of the things I was taught as a chaplain. If someone's in denial, oh, I have stage four pancreatic cancer, but I'm going to beat it. You don't say, no, you're not. You're going to die. You don't rip denial away from people. Denial is a very, very important psychological mechanism. It's a valid way to respond to how serious the situation is. 
but I don't think that making an argument or you know showing people the science, as as Greta Thunberg, my hero, uh, says, you know, follow the science. And some of these deniers, the science is never going to matter. Legislators should know better. Let's not vote for the deniers. That's one of my policies in life. One last thing I want to deal with, Carl. And again, folks, we are coming close to the end of my visit with Carl Magruder, although I could sit here all day if we both didn't have other appointments. And that is because you are African-American, there's maybe some insights into the world that you could offer to our Spirit in Action listeners about this moment in time. Again, your work right now as a chaplain for the past 10 years, your care for the earth, your ability to see where people have generally had their eyes closed or have been in denial of, not to rip their denial away from them, but to enlighten the world a bit more. I'm wondering if there's anything that you can say to me about the state of the world with respect to racism right now. We are talking before we got on the air, your time in Humboldt County and understanding some people's reaction to Obama and to Trump. Can you enlighten us a little bit from the perspective, the the chair that you've been sitting in, which I think gives a better point of view for a lot of that? Yeah. So technically, I've been trying to parse my sort of my racial identity a little more accurately. So I'm actually biracial. I was transracially adopted. That's my liberal, optimistic parents, Quaker parents, adopted me in 1970, and they're both white, and my whole, my sisters and my whole family pretty much is white. That was just barely legal. It had just become a possibility to transracially adopt in this country. So uh, that's a little bit of my location. And it's not the same as being African-American and being raised in an African-American family and context. I mean, every individual has their own distinct journey. But the biracial viewpoint is, it's ambivalent in the true sense of that, being ambi, like ambidextrous, left hand, right hand, valent, having a valence, having a viewpoint. There's two viewpoints. And so I can watch a conversation with black folks and white folks and just watch where the miscommunication happens. Because I understand the white mind and I can understand the black mind and I can go, oh, oh, I see, I see where that went bad. You know, I remember an environmentalist saying, you know, that the people who were hunting elephants for ivory in Africa should just be shot. And of course, those are all black people who are poor and ivory is a fortune. And, you know, the elephant is more important than a black person, you know, and I understand exactly why the white environmentalist is saying that. And I understand exactly why the black environmentalist in the room got up and left. You know, you can watch these things happen. So that's really my location. And Part of what I've understood by living up in Humboldt County is that beyond race, the problem is that we have a mentality that some people are chosen and some people are not. We have a deep, deep belief in a disparity of worthiness and ability and value. It is deep, deep, deep in us. It's one of the places where I don't think we get a lot of help from the Bible because the Bible tends to agree with that viewpoint. You know, there's higher folks and lower folks and there's chosen people and despised people. And it's really, it's all through there. There's some gems too. Like there's a lot of commoners who become rulers, which is, I think, where we get our democratic process since uh, all the people who started this country came from monarchies. But that belief will persist beyond race. if We do not root it out. And part of how I came to this understanding was working in Humboldt County in far northern California, which is less than 1% black. There are Native American people, 
many more Native American people than I'd ever worked with, which is a whole nother story, but an incredible joy to be able to learn about what's happening amongst uh, our indigenous brothers and sisters. And that's an area, that's where the big trees are, the trees that were saplings when Jesus walked the earth. So the timber industry was this huge, huge industry, fishing, paper mills, etc. It's pretty much all gone. It's just about fished out. There's no old growth. There's much less logging. Those were jobs that you could do whether you'd finished high school or not. I had one guy early on in my tenure up there whose mother dropped him off at high school. He'd gone through junior high school. She dropped him off at high school in the front of the building. He walked into the building, so she saw him go in. He walked through the building, came out the backside, hitched a ride up into the hills, and started driving truck on a logging site with his uncle. And when I met him, he was 90 years old. He had worked in logging until he had been disabled. That's how you retire from logging. At 55, he broke his back in I don't know how many places. And he had been living in a home that he owned with a wife who didn't work from the age of 55 to 90 on a pension with his prescriptions covered and health care and, you know, buying a new used car when he needed it or he didn't have money troubles. And he took hunting trips to Montana and things like that. He had a good life. And his sons? No, no, there's nothing like that. The unions are gone. Those people in Humboldt County, white people that I'm talking about, although it affects everyone, they look at their family legacy and they go, I'm, gonna, I'm not living up to dad. I'm not living up to grandpa. And if you don't understand the meta socio-demographics and economics and the, the destruction of the unions and all that stuff, then it just seems like I'm a failure. And there's this incredible bitterness. And that's part of what elects Trump, is that Trump is going to make America great again. He cares about the working class guy. You can understand him when he talks. There is a desire there for what's good. There's really a desire for something good and beautiful and thriving. So these are the throwaway people. And they're not black, but they're not necessary for the economic engine. And when some of our patients, I, if I, we try not to use the word patient, actually, we try to say people because a patient is objectified. So some of the people that we look after, we care for, resolution care, are folks who have had maybe a hard life, maybe a history of drug use, a history of incarceration. They may have poor dentition or whatever it is. And they go into the emergency room because they've got cancer in their bones. And the emergency room treats them like trash and drug-seeking. And, you know, I've had emergency room nurses who are just frustrated. They became nurses to help people, and they're in this healthcare system that's a mess. They're frustrated. And, you know, saying, well, I can let you back from the waiting room into a room, but you're not getting anything but acetaminophen, you know, this sort of, you think you're going to get some big hit of opioid, and you're not. And that's, that's what my grandmother got when she went to the White Hospital in Alabama. So it's really uh, the great scripture of the Sneetches on the Beaches by the prophet Theodore Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss. He's really getting to something. You have a star on your belly, or you don't, or you have two, or you have four, or you have one on your head, you know, and then the guy with the star machine drives off, and here we are, and we're just speckled with stars, and we just finally decide to stop saying some people matter more than others. So we have to get past that, regardless of any other, you know, of whether it's race or sexual orientation or whatever. We just have to transcend that. But I think we also have to address these things in the particular. So we have to address race. And we kind of have to address black racism as not entirely the same as other racisms. There are discrete and different, you know, no one's too worried about illegal immigrants who are black. But in this part of the world where I am now in San Diego, you know, this is a huge issue in the Latinx population. 
and stopping people and their papers and separating families. And so I think it's that deeper understanding that we have to attain to. And I think we can look to our history to see that it's not totally impossible. That We have actually done that a lot of different times. And it's facile to point out that the Irish and the Italians were despised when they came to this country in some ways, but it is also true. And, you know, they accomplished whiteness, as the sociologists say, and those distinctions matter much less. Jewish people accomplished whiteness. Those are successes. And I think in the Quaker community that I travel in, I realize this is being a problem in the Quaker community in a lot of places, you know, if the nominating committee comes forward with a clerk who's a woman or who's gay or who's transgender, it's not even part of the conversation. Like, that's not relevant. You know, it's, oh, well, she has really good clerking skills. We're pretty over it in my corner of Quakerism. I hear stories. Mm -hmm. So I think we have a lot of successes. And I think what's been painful for me as a progressive in recent years was that I sort of believed this was my sacred cow that I went to seminary with and uh, had never examined, was that we were just going to progress towards a society that was more egalitarian, that worked for more people, that took care of its people. And I've had to recognize that we can go in the other direction. But inevitably, I think the trajectory is towards the beloved community and the inclusion of everyone. People with disabilities have this big, big push for the ADA, incredible activism, but we need to be having this much broader understanding of that of God and everyone. That's, that's what it meant when the friends said it. And it's not any kind of a wisdom that's unique to Quakers anymore, thank God. And that's what we need to live into at the same time that we address defund the police and, and these kinds of problems. I've had my own you know, fun adventures with cops being alarmed by me because of my demographics and you know, the whole hand on the gun thing. So it's not that I don't think that that's a very real and pressing problem. I just want us to address the particular while maintaining the larger perspective and understanding the error in our thinking. We've only gotten started with Carl Magruder today, folks. There's a bunch of links you're going to find to Carl on the northernspiritradio.org website. I had another one. The Solway's website, and you could link to it as well. FGC did a conversation with myself and two other Quaker chaplains, Blake Arnall and Larry Keeler, at the beginning of the shelter in place. Martha Rusek produced it and interviewed us. And we were talking about death and dying and advanced care planning and grief in general, but also in time of COVID. And it's a conversation that I feel was of value because I learned so much from my peers and also from Martha's very good questions. So folks might want to check that out too. This is a time of incredible grief. And I think that's another one of the problems with our leaping to activism without dealing with our grief is that we then go out and we're sort of this oozing wound and we need to grieve well. And it is a whole nother conversation, but Quakers are terrible at grief. We want to <laughs> rationalize it or we want to become activists about it, but we don't want to sit there and wail. And wailing is what's called for in these times. You know, there's, you've got to sit on the floor or sit on a box, uh, as Jewish folks do when they sit Shiva, because your body just won't hold you up. You know, your limbs are, are like water. It's just a terrible, terrible time of grief. And people need to be attending to the grief. I invited folks during the Bible half hour to write a lament, either in the biblical style or any style. And I received some beautiful laments that dealt with the big picture, but also the things that are so personal, like I'm locked down by myself and I have not been touched by another human person for three months. 
just incredible lament and sorrow. And then there's particular grieving that we need to do, and there's collective grieving. And I think that's one of the things about George Floyd was that that grieving, because of the, that tradition of the public funeral that we have in this country, and certainly other countries, you see it in Palestine, you saw it in South Africa, that invites us all into the grief and into it is the cry for justice. But the grief isn't short change. We don't skip the grief. There's no shortcut. The grief is right there. And from that, we grow to justice. So we will include a link to that French General Conference interview also with Marta via Marta on nordenspiritradio.org. You'll find a link to his interview that's from the Western Friend Western Friend, a wonderful magazine for Quakers in the western part of the U.S., co-written with Darcy Stanley called Lifting the Veil. You'll find link to his Friends General Conference Bible half-hour videos, and you'll find link to civiclight.org slash soulways. So you don't memorize that, just come to nordenspiritradio.org and start to know Carl Magruder better the healing work that you do, Carl, for the world in so many ways, connection with the earth, connection with people, presence to our grief and transcending and seeing it and carrying it in the bigger arms that are where God carries us is so wonderful. And bringing in the language of so many religions and spiritual insights, including the trickster in in your Bible half hours, the Native American trickster idea, as it's lived out in many different religions, is so wonderful. So thank you for opening our minds, our hearts, and for working on healing the world. And thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been wonderful to reflect on some of these things in this time and to feel that groundswell of folks who are getting connected and getting involved and feeling their sorrow and feeling their love and moving off of the couch, even though maybe we can't move off the couch. It's an exciting time, and I think this is a trim tab, this show, because it gives people an opportunity to find the energy and find the community that they need to move in the world in such a way as to bring it into a harmonious, peaceful shalom. And to that I say, Alleluia, and thank you again. I'll see all you folks next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh